All right, you can go ahead and be turning back to Galatians chapter 2. We're going to be finishing the chapter this week. Uh, first of all, how about it being cool enough to like wear a light jacket today? Isn't that great? It feels so good. Like, no? Oh, man. No, I'm, I'm fine with some warm weather, but man, the first day you get to put on a hoodie and walk outside. So I was like, I should take this off to preach in, but I'm like, but I can wear it, so I'm not going to. So, sorry, full confession, wearing the hoodie. I don't care if it looks slouchy. It's very comfy. So uh, here's the thing. Here's my question. What is worth defending to you? Like, like what is, what is worth, what's worth fighting for? Um, the, 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 great, the great trilogy of Back to the Future, Marty McFly would say his honor is worth fighting for above all else, right? Because he had this like, um, this like tick, this like, he could not help himself. If you called him chicken, if you said he was a scaredy cat, if you called him something, right, like the music would always change, his eyes would change, and he would make some of the worst decisions that he could possibly make just because somebody had challenged him on his honor, on his willingness to do whatever it takes to demonstrate his bravery, right? Like he was always willing to defend that. He would go to great lengths. And, and, and in fact, it's part of his great character development across all the different films that by the end he's finally able to withstand giving in to somebody calling him a scaredy cat. Like, 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 but, but, but what we see in there is just this, this uncontrollable desire to fight for something, to fight on behalf of something. Now, in his case, it's kind of self-centered, and he's fighting on behalf of his own honor. He's fighting on behalf of this unavoidable desire to make sure that people think more highly of him or don't think that he's afraid of whatever it is that he's facing. But, but do we feel that same way about the gospel? Do we feel that same way about God, about, about the word of God, about this book, about the church, like the big C church, even our local church? Do we, feel, do we feel that same sense of, I want to fight for the honor of this thing. I'm willing to, to go to the mat to defend the truth that this book presents or to defend the life that this book calls those who pursue Jesus to? Am I willing to, to speak out against that, to challenge the status quo and say, no, 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 this is something worth holding on tightly to. This is something we're fighting for. And this is where we are uh, with Paul to this point in our Gospel Plus nothing series that we're in. Um, it's that he's established that the authority of the Bible, that the word of God stands above everything else and that we should, we should be holding to this and saying this is ultimately our authority. What God says about himself matters more than anything else. We're going to listen to that. Paul has also established that he has authority on behalf of Christ who, who awakened him, who brought him to life, right? We, we, we talked through kind of his testimony a little bit last week, how he was brought to life by the power of the Holy Spirit and given this new set of motivations and given this new authority by Jesus to deliver truth out of this book to the church. Or in some cases, be inspired by the Holy Spirit to write new portions of it for us to kind of go back and study. But, but Paul also has this authority. And, and then today he's going to kind of present his defense of the authority of the gospel on its own, by itself. That the gospel has authority and that 
that, that to, to stray, to deviate, to move away from the heart, the center of what the gospel is, the gospel being that, that message of salvation for those who are far from God, right? If we, if we stray, if we get too far away from center, that it undermines the whole thing, but that that, that message carries authority even within itself. That, that just like we've kind of said up to this point, the Bible stands alone, as does the heart of the gospel stand alone. So if you're in Galatians chapter 2, uh, I'm going to start in verse 11. Paul says, For I would have you know, brothers, that this gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church. I'm sorry, I'm reading the wrong chapter, aren't I? I just looked down, I'm like, well, because the section break where I was starting is verse 11 in chapter 1. I'm so sorry. This is what happens when you've read the whole book so much. It's just all one thing. So I'm going to try, let's try this again. Let's try this again. Chapter 2, verse 11. Action. But when Cephas came to Antioch, does everybody have that? that? Does that sound a little bit better? Okay. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And when the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews. Okay, so let's stop right there. So what is Peter doing wrong here? Right, right, because what what, what's the situation that we find ourselves in? It's that, that Peter was eating non-kosher meals with Gentile believers. If you recall, and we talked about this, we've talked about this a couple times recently. When we were in our Acts study, we talked about we talked about Peter having this, this vision from God that God said, go eat whatever you want. Whatever I've made clean is clean to you. And then when we were kind of going through our canceled series, we even talked about how Peter still struggled to get beyond this idea that it's okay for, for him to kind of let go of the traditions of the Jews and the practices of the Jews and live in freedom, the freedom that he has in Christ. Like this has been a struggle for him. But what Paul's saying is, when I came to go visit with Peter, what I saw was awesome. He was sitting there. He was eating with everybody. They were having a good time. Community, fellowship was happening. They were all kind of united, right? He was seeing it played out properly. But he was basically sitting there eating whatever it was that they were eating, just for the sake of being with them. And he wasn't afraid of any consequences because he knew his salvation was in Jesus. His salvation wasn't being brought on by what he ate or did not eat. And so he was unafraid to sit there and be with them. But then it says, some men from James. Now, I think it's important that we establish, it says some men who came from James. These are not people acting necessarily on behalf of what James's wishes would have been. Because we, we, we talked about this last week. When Paul went and visited with Peter and with James, right? He left saying, we're on the same page here. We believe the same things theologically. We're practicing the same things. The only thing 
that, that James wanted to reiterate that he made sure that Paul was taking care of was that, that people who were poor were being taken care of. And Paul's like, cool, I'm on that same page with you. Like, we're on the same page. So these people are obviously not representing the theology that James was calling them to practice accurately. These were people from, what did he call them? The circumcision party, which does not sound like a fun party. Like, that is not a party that I want to get an invite. If, if I get an invitation and it says, come hang out at the circumcision party, I'm going to be like, I think I'm busy. I think I got something else I'm going to do that day. But anyway, so these guys from the circumcision party, these guys who are coming in and, 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 and trying to add these extra, again, adding extra layers on top of the gospel, saying, you need to practice these kosher meals. You need to eat the way that God had called us to uh, several thousand years ago when we were wandering through the desert and God was giving us the law. We still need to be making sure that we're eating those things. And we need to follow the traditions that we've kind of built up over the years. Maybe not even rooted in scripture, but just some, pr some practices that we've enacted along the way. And, and when they came in, they kind of pressured Peter. And Peter... Instead of, instead of standing up and saying, no, we don't have that. We have freedom in Christ now. He buckled. He gave in. He kind of shied away. He went and ate with them. He kind of separated himself from these new believers that he had been ministering to. And what Paul is saying is, I went and I challenged Peter because it's not just that he fell into sin by, by buckling and adding on these layers to his, his, his need for Jesus. But in doing so, he confused these new believers. Even worse for Paul, he started confusing Barnabas. Even Barnabas started following after him, saying, well, I guess I have to go practice those things too because Peter's doing it. Right? He, was, he, was pulled into, he was pulling more people into sin with him. It wasn't just on him. And we learn just how important that this interaction is, like what's at stake. This is the only time in Scripture that we see one apostle challenging another apostle on a matter of sin. Like, this is it. This is our example of what it looks like when an apostle gets it wrong and an apostle calls him out. So, so this must be a big deal since it's given to us, recorded for us to come back and study. It must be vital that, that Peter straying away from this was a big deal. And so, and so, like I said, when I asked the question at the beginning, what's worth defending to you? Paul demonstrates just how vital it is that we as the church be prepared to defend the honor of the truth of the heart of the gospel, at the heart of the gospel. Like, like we must be ready to come to the gospel's defense. Peter's public sin that was leading others astray needed to be addressed publicly in front of them so that they would all understand that this was, this was a violation. This was, this was moving away from what, pe what Paul's about to discuss, justification by faith. That our faith in Christ is the only thing that saves us, not the practices that we may layer on top. Like he's, he's, about, to, he's about to say, here's the real solution. We're going to read it in just a minute. But to start, he's making this point. I need, I need to call you out on this, Peter, and I need everybody to hear this because I don't want you all to be confused. I don't, want, I don't want things that are present in your life to continue to pull people away from the heart of the gospel because now these new believers or people who are just now maybe kind of beginning to understand what's going on are going to put their faith in the wrong thing. They're going to put their faith in their action. They're going to put their faith in some practice that you're, you're, you're demonstrating and scaring them about. It's so vital 
and Paul's trying to make this point. I had, and he's telling the Galatians, right? I opposed him to his face. He's saying, I had no choice. I had to deal with this right then. Because if not, he was sending people to hell. Because he was not living out the gospel in a way that was going to draw people to Christ. And, and if we get this wrong, if we lose sight of kind of the foundational points of the gospel, it doesn't just affect us. It's going to affect those that we bring with us. We're bringing everybody along with us if we don't live this out. Because we are being watched. So why is this such a big deal? What's, what's, what's the answer to this? What's the opposite of the way that he was practicing, right? So if you're still in Galatians chapter 2, I am going to continue to read from chapter 2 this time. I promise. Uh, we're going to pick up in verse 15. Paul says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. I'm going to talk about that label in just a second. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified by Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself only to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were of the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is kind of the theological crux of the whole book. Like, if there was a section, this might be a good idea. Somebody file this away in their memory banks for this evening when we get together to read. Because uh, we had been doing a lot of Bible memorization. We kind of got off of that once we started into, like, Zoom land. But, but we were doing a lot of scripture memorization. If I think if we were going to memorize a portion of Galatians while we're studying, like this section, verses 15 through 21, maybe even just uh, 17 through 21, that section right there is, is kind of the heart of Paul's argument for this whole book. Everything led up to this point is building up to the authority of this statement, and then a lot of what's going to follow is how to live out the truth in this statement. This is, kind of, this is kind of everything that he's been building to. And, and what he's trying to say is, even though we were born into the Jewish faith, we were born into these practices, we, we've, we've understood these things our whole life, our whole life was built around all of these different examples, these things that I've just got done saying, I was calling Peter out for falling back into, right? Even though we've lived these things out, they knew. They were on, right, we talked about it last week. They were on the same page theologically. They knew that that wasn't what was saving them. They had this kind of unified understanding that it was their faith in Jesus that was their hope for salvation. Outside of Christ, they had nothing. It wasn't based on anything that they had done or could do to earn their salvation. 
Paul's question asks, so he asks this question, and this is in verse 17, but, but if in our endeavor to be justified by Christ, we too were found to be sinners, he uses that label, right, that, that label sinners that he had used earlier, talking about Gentile sinners, he's like, we were born Jews, not Gentile sinners, the, the, the label that's being used there, he's not trying to say that Jews are born not sinners, but Jews are born into the practice that they were, they'd, they'd been used to their whole life. We aren't in sin because we're practicing these things properly. Those Gentiles, they do nothing. They're sinners. And what he's basically trying to say is, in, in verse 17 there, to live as the Gentiles do in freedom in Christ, does that make them a, if that makes them a sinner because they're no longer practicing these old portions of the law, you know, does that, does that make them also sinners? Like, are we now sinners because we're living in this freedom that Christ has given us? And he's saying, absolutely not. He's saying, is Christ, is Christ calling us to be sinful? No. No, he's not calling us to be sinful. But he's saying that, that when we realize that our salvation is in him and that he's made all of this available to us now, this new life that we've been called into... To those who have been so kind of hardcore locked into the traditions of Jewish practice our whole lives, basically it looks like we're being called into sinful action. We're being called into the life of the sinner. We're being called away from all of these practices that we were going by to earn our salvation for so long. And he's saying, if you're going to say that we're becoming sinners by doing that, then what you're saying is that Jesus calls us to sin. And that's just simply not the case. That's just simply not the way that it is. He goes on to make the point but, but that if we continue to live under the law, by placing ourselves back under the law, basically, and he says this, we're nullifying the actions that Jesus took on our behalf so that we could be added to the family of God. Right? Verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If I fall back into this, if I, he says even before in verse 18, for if I rebuild what I tore down, if I, if I build this thing back up, the whole point was that Jesus knocked all of that down. The, the, the whole the veil of the curtain torn in two, like the temple, we, we no longer have to separate ourselves from God. We have full access to God through the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. Jesus is now our high priest and mediator between us and God. Like, like we have all of these things. And if we rebuild all of these kind of institutions that we were used to, if we fall back into these practices, if, if, if the circumcision party shows up and says, hey, come eat with us the way that we're eating, and you shy away and you fall back into that, you're basically saying, man, I don't think Jesus' death meant much. Man, that really wasn't a big deal. It really didn't accomplish anything because I still have to go back and do all of this. Like, say, say, hypothetically speaking, you ask, I don't know, your child to go clean their room. This never happens. Say you've asked your child to go clean their room, and they kind of go work on it, but then in the end you go back in and you decide, I'm, they've done a pretty good job, but you decide, you know what, I want to rearrange this place. And you take everything out and you put it back in a new place all over the, like, you're, you're, 
They've already accomplished all that needed to be accomplished. You said, go clean your room. They cleaned their room. But then you go in and you add all this action on top. You say, well, I think to make it really clean, I actually have to rearrange everything. I have to put things in new places. You can do that, but why did you have them clean their room to begin with? It completely nullifies the work that they had already done. Right? There was no reason for that action to have taken place because you've come in behind them and you've added so much other. That's essentially what Paul is saying here. He's saying, if we start adding all these actions back into what we think is going to justify us before God, we're basically saying none of what Jesus did matters. And he's saying, I don't want you to be in that camp. I don't want you to be in that place where you think less of the completed work of Jesus. It is vital that we keep that in mind. The fact that Christ died, the fact that he went through that, makes acts of righteousness to obtain salvation unnecessary. Like, the whole, the whole point of him dying was to put that part to death, to be done with it, and to say, I've accomplished all that needs to be accomplished on your behalf. If God intended for us to continue adding anything to it, he would not have sent Christ. And that's the argument that Paul's making. That's the point that he's trying to make. He's like, if you're going to fall back into those things, why did God even bother sending Jesus? But he did, so you shouldn't. He's saying it's something from the outside of us that saves us. It's not anything within us naturally. I was listening to a sermon one time, um, and he was make, the way he described it was, salvation is, is an alien thing. Like, it is not something that pre-exists within us. It's something that, is put, that comes and, and works itself in us from outside of us. And that's something from outside of us, that salvation that, that we can't muster. And the point that, and, and Paul's kind of trying to reiterate what Peter had already been learning through his journey. We've talked about this again, because we, we've talked about Peter a couple of different times up to this point in the last few months. But, but that outside force that came and saved Peter, that came and saved Paul, that came and saved you and me, that outside thing is also the same things that brings those who were once outside of the family of God into the family of God. Which is why it's so important that he's saying this, this distinction that we're making between Gentile sinners and the Jews who are practicing these things that God called them to. Like, like we don't have that. That's not a thing. The work of Christ brings about salvation and makes it available for all kinds of people, regardless of whether they're a Jew or a Gentile. And they don't have to become one or the other to be saved, right? Nick said he had already been, he told me this this morning because he saw the verses as I was putting them in. He said, I was thinking about doing Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 before. I said, that's perfect because I am going now into Ephesians 2, 11 through 16. If you want to flip over there, you can It'll be on the screen. But we, you got to think, Paul had just gotten done with his argument. You were dead, made alive because God loves you. 
And then he picks up Ephesians 2, starting in verse 11. And I'm going to go through 16. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So he's saying, I get that this distinction has existed. There have been differences in types of people and the way that salvation was, was not yet made available to everybody because the work of Christ had not yet been completed. There was this gap. You were far from God, not knowing these things. But again, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Note what he didn't say. By the sweat of your brow, by the work that you put in. No, by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. Paul's making this point. Yes, these distinctions have been there. And at one point, to come in and say, I'm going to go live like one of you would have been offensive to God. Because God had established, this is the way that I want the people that I have called to live. This is the kind of practice that I want you to live out. And if, someone, and, and if someone was to believe in God, they would have begun practicing these same things that the Jews were practicing. In fact, we saw that happening. We see that happen in the Old Testament, where some of the people that Israel was supposed to drive out of the land stayed, but instead they say, well, if you're going to stay, you've got to live like us. Like, we've seen that happen. But all of that kind of gets washed away, right? That's the point that he says. He says, in verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, right? He's saying, the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross takes all of that away, takes all that effort, all that work. It was incomplete. It didn't finish anything. It didn't, it didn't bring resolution to the division that was so present among all of the people. He's saying, when we center ourselves on the gospel and the completed work of Jesus and recognize that it's only our faith in him that saves us, not anything that we can muster, not any good that we can do, not any actions that we can take, not any righteousness or or confessions that we say. Nothing, there's no, there's no incantation, there's no right prayer, there's no right posture to pray it in. He's saying, none of those things matter. Christ tore all those things down because those things are the things that tend to divide us. Those are the things that kept all the people separate because they were saying, you have to live this way. And some people were saying, well, we don't want to live that way. We are, we're going to live this way. And then Paul's here in the middle saying, if your faith is in Jesus, 
as long as you're not sinning, all of these things are available to you. Let's, not, let's, let's all get along here. And he's trying to make this call for unity based on the gospel, based on what the message that God gave the church was. So what are we supposed to do with all of this? I kind of have, I have two things that we can do. One, and it's going to depend on, at the time, which of the main characters we're talking about you're living like. If you find yourself in the place of Paul, and I hope you're finding yourself in the place of Paul, where you're seeing the gospel being distorted, where you're seeing things be taken out of context, where you're seeing people being asked to do things that's not a part of what God calls us to as his people, where you're seeing these things being played out improperly, just like Paul did, be, be willing and prepared to defend the simplicity and the completion of the gospel. You get that? The, like, like the by the simplicity, I mean that it really is Jesus died making salvation available to us and we add nothing to that. We just put our hope in him. That's salvation. Like that. Be prepared. Like, and then if you see infringement upon that, if you see that being challenged, being willing to speak out against it. And by being willing, I mean even when it's unpopular. Even if it's offending those who are around us. Even if it's going to hurt the feelings of people that may be very close to you. Friends, family. That's what real love looks like. I say that with a smile because sometimes I try to say things because I love people and they're like, this doesn't feel very loving. We don't like hearing it. And I'm like... I don't doubt for a second that Paul had a deep love for Peter and he wanted Peter to be righteous and pursuing Christ it, with, with, with no fear that he's going to fall into sin. And that's why Paul challenged him so aggressively on this. Because it's so vital that he not lose sight of what the gospel calls us to. So you may see that in people around you. Are you willing to say something about it? Are you willing to defend the honor of the gospel? Even if it may hurt someone's feelings even if it may make it uncomfortable to be around, even if it may separate you for a time. How willing are you to challenge? Now, maybe you find yourself sometimes in the place of Peter with the temptation or the challenge to, to kind of soften on the heart of the gospel or to add something to the gospel is being given to you. Where... Uh, as an example, where, like, which example? This one. Where, like, the, the call for being politically correct or something like that may say, you can't say the God, salvation is only for people who have faith in Jesus. There are many ways to God. I think we would all agree there aren't many ways to God. I think in this room, I'm looking around. I think for the most part, we'd all be on the same page that there are not many ways to God. There's one hope in Jesus that we have. But perhaps you're being told, if you want to be accepted, you have to be willing to, to allow people 
or you have to be willing to accept that there may be other ways. You feel that pressure, and you want to be accepted. You want to be liked. You want to be respected. Are you going to, like Peter did, kind of step back and potentially confuse those who are around you because you're allowing the gospel that you so confidently teach when you're around the people that you're, you're really close with, but once you're, you're, you're met with the challenge of the crowd, you can begin to shy away or you're going to hold fast to the truth of the gospel. Fight the temptation to let additional requirements not just enter your practice, not just say, I've got to do this thing to make Jesus like me, but even enter your language, right? Because one of the things that I've been getting from this book and one of the things that we've said a couple of different times is like, when I say the gospel plus nothing, I really mean the gospel plus like, like zero things, like nothing, like, like, like we have all the language that we need to solve all the problems of the world right here. Will it always solve the problems of the world? Probably not. But does it have the power to? Absolutely. So we don't need to let other things, the temptation to allow other things to let our language soften or our actions soften or anything like, or, or, or be, be added upon. Like, and, and I think that's not just like a conceptual fight that we have to have with ourselves to say, okay, I am now resolved that I will never do that. I think this is a daily fight. I think this is a daily struggle, a daily prayer that we can ask God. Let my life reflect the truth and the simplicity of your gospel and not, not give in to the temptation to make the path as wide as I possibly can so that as many people feel comfortable being around. Like that temptation is going to be present no matter what, because there are so many voices, especially depending on how much you listen to people and how much maybe even your, and again, we're all going to experience this in different ways, but maybe your personality type is really driven by what people think about you or what you think people think about you. Like I know for me, like I am a huge words of affirmation guy. So anything I can do to get words of affirmation from people, I am tempted to do. Like, like, say nice things to me, please, is kind of like what everything on my insides tends to cry out. But if, if, if that desire to be affirmed leads me to give in to the temptation to make it easier for people to say nice things to me, but I'm giving up, I'm selling out parts of the gospel, or I'm selling out parts of what I say, all I'm doing is nullifying the completed work of Jesus. I'm saying it matters less than whatever this other thing is. And again, we're all going to experience this in different ways. We're all going to be driven and motivated by different things. We're all going to have different experiences. We're all going to put ourselves in different situations where we're interacting with people in different ways. So I can't give you a perfect example for every single one of you of how this temptation might creep into your life. But it's so easy to do. It's so easy to change our language or to change our actions or to think, well, I can just go eat a meal with these guys. It's not a problem. Just like Peter did. He probably didn't think it was a huge deal. He's like, yeah, so while they're here, I'm going to go eat with them. Just so, just so it doesn't ruffle any feathers, guys. I'm just going to eat with them. Just so it's not a big deal. Instead of saying, 
with great confidence, defending the honor of the gospel. No, guys, this isn't what we do. We know that our salvation is in Jesus. I don't have to, it's good that I'm eating with these people. Think about the example, again, the example of Jesus who went and ate with tax collectors and sinners. And they said, hey, why are you doing that? And he said, why wouldn't I? Why I'm here? It's why we're here. To deliver the gospel, to love people, and to, and to show them the truth of what Christ has done in our lives. And represent that wholeheartedly, unapologetically, exactly as he has presented himself to us. Let's pray. So God, I pray that that our hearts would be guarded against that temptation. That temptation to weaken our message, soften our actions, or, or add new actions just for the sake of being more acceptable or, or, or thinking that things don't matter. But instead, God, I pray that you would instill in us a resolute sense of I am going to defend the gospel and everything that it represents at all costs with my entire life. God, I pray that you would just continue to reveal to us, reveal in us, just like you did with Paul when he was talking about his salvation last week. He said, he saw fit to reveal himself in me. I pray that you would reveal in us this new heart that, that you have given us, this heart that, that, that had the faith to believe in you, this new heart that you have given us, God, by the power of the completed work of Jesus, this new heart that you have given us, this new desires. I pray that you would fill us with this resolution to defend your gospel at all costs, to confidently fight for your truth and to do so unapologetically, not to do so in a mean way, but to not do so in a way that, that would seem to weaken your gospel or weaken your message, but instead that we can confidently stand upon the word of God. That be our foundation and, and live our lives without the fear of, of retribution from outside, but instead um, to just hold fast to your truth. God, I pray that you would also give us the confidence in your word that where we see it being modified, challenged, added to, changed, weakened in some way, that just like Paul, we would be unafraid to speak out the need for correction, the need for repentance if it's someone who is in Christ, or to speak out against a false message where the gospel is being misapplied or misrepresented. God, I pray that you would fill us with the confidence that Paul had to challenge like the rock upon which Christ built his church. Paul was unafraid to challenge and say, you're getting this wrong. And God, I pray that we wouldn't become like mean little out on a witch hunt kind of people that are just trying to nitpick and make people feel small, but instead would just be so in love with the words of your scripture and the truth of your gospel that we can't help but speak accurately and powerfully um, to its importance and, and what it is that you have given to us in your word. God, I know that um, not everybody listening to this may have that same faith that I'm talking about. They're, they may not have faith in Christ. They may... They may be getting by thinking that they're doing good enough or that they're a good person. And 
And just like Nick read this morning that, that apart from Christ, we are dead in our sins. We have no hope but that you, being rich in mercy, because of your great love for us, made us alive because your son was willing to die in our place. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And God, I pray that you would um, give faith to those who may be hearing this and not have their hearts fully set on you and have their, have their faith placed in you, that you would give new understanding to what that means or, or give motivation to ask more questions so that this can be resolved in them. God, I pray that um, you would just complete that work in their hearts even now. God, we're so thankful for who you are and what you've done in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing it.